You're not in this story. Yeah, well, we're making it up as we go. Hello and welcome to Making It Up As We Go, a Destiel fan fiction anthology podcast. We're making it up as we go. I'm your host and reader, Nerdy Nerdenstein. The story is ours now. You can't have it back. Please be warned that the stories featured can and will contain explicit sexual content and is not intended for young audiences. Hello. Today I'll be recording Depth of Field by Tess Etc. The rating for this fic is explicit. The pertinent tags for this fic includes Major character death, but kind of not. Time travel, illness, vomiting, pining. Photographer Dean, Dr. Castiel. 1960s, 2010s. Alternative universe, no monsters are hunting. Implied or referenced suicide. Grief and mourning. Smut. Try to keep you close to me. Chapter 5. Back Home A beam of light blasting into his eyes jolts Dean to fuzzy awareness. He's in a car, somehow, propped up in the front seat. His stomach roils unpleasantly and he moans, unsure what to do if he throws up. I didn't have time to grab a bucket, sorry, but there's a Walmart bag if you need it. Sam's worried voice comes from the driver's seat and Dean barely has time to uncrumple the bag before he pukes into it, violently, his head throbbing behind his eyes. We're almost at the hospital. I didn't want to wait for an ambulance. Dean forces his eyes open and realizes he's in Sam's caravan, and Sam is speeding a little more than he normally would. What happened? Dean grits out, fighting off another wave of nausea. I should be asking you that, Dean. You didn't answer any texts all day yesterday. I thought you were working, but this morning you didn't answer your phone, so I came over. When I came in, I found you on the kitchen floor, passed out in a pool of vomit. There are black spots in front of Dean's eyes, so he closes them for a moment, drifting away without answering Sam, waking only once they come to a stop. Sam gets out and opens the door. Can you walk? he asks. I managed to carry you to the car, but it wasn't easy. I'm fine, Sammy, Dean mutters, but his body makes a liar out of him as another wave of dizziness overcomes him, forcing Sam to half-carry him into the ER. He spends the next while in the waiting room alternating between alertness and fuzzy half-consciousness, 
but by the time he makes it into an exam room, he's mostly awake and the nausea has passed. A nurse takes his blood and they wait about a half an hour for the doctor to return. Your sugar is a little low, but your other levels are good, the doctor says. Can you tell me what happened? Dean can't. He says maybe it was something he ate, and the doctor seems skeptical, asking him some questions about drug use and other habits, looking at Sam for answers. Sam confirms that Dean is not a drug user, and the doctor, obviously distrustful of Dean, decides to take Dean's increasing lucidity and mobility at face value and discharges him, with a recommendation to see his GP and look into getting further tests if his symptoms return or worsen. Well, that was a waste of time. Sam says as they leave the hospital, several hours after they arrived. I told you I was fine, Dean retorts. You could barely walk or keep your eyes open when we got here, Dean. You're staying at our place tonight, and you're going to explain what happened. Dean knows that when his little brother uses his dad voice, there is no getting around it. And besides, despite being improved, he is still feeling pretty unwell. He doesn't argue when Sam heads towards his house instead of Dean's, aside from some concerns about his front door being locked while he's away. Dean had taken the last of his childhood things home when Jessica became pregnant with their second child, and they moved Lily into Dean's old room. But Dean usually keeps the basics in the closet in the spare room slash office at Sam's place, for the occasional time that Dean has one too many beers to drive home. He changes into sweatpants and crashes on the futon immediately when he arrives, not waking up until Sam pokes his head in to tell him supper is ready. Dean gets to his feet and fights off a brief wave of vertigo before making his way to the dining room. He brushes off Sam's questions during dinner, focusing instead on Lily and her toddler monologue until the leftovers are stowed and the dishwasher started. Sam puts some kind of cartoon on the TV in the living room, then sits back down at the table across from Dean and folds his arms. Okay, Dean, what the hell happened? Dean looks between Sam and Jessica with a grin. You aren't going to believe me, but I time-traveled. Time travel isn't possible, Dean. Well, that's what happened. I took a selfie, and I think the camera sent me back in time. The flash went off, and I ended up in 1962 in my house with Dr. Castiel Novak, age 32. I puked on the floor and he nursed me back to health. We went to Benny's Diner, Sammy. It was amazing. He has a 55 Chevy Bel Air because he's got fantastic taste. Dean, that's not funny. I know you've been kind of off since that guy died, but this really isn't funny. I'm not joking, Sam. You know that picture of the guy with the blanket in the kitchen? The one that kind of looked like me? That's because it was me, and I took most of the pictures on that roll. I couldn't resist the way downtown looked back then. I don't know how the camera worked to send me back in time, but it wasn't the camera that brought me back. I was in the kitchen with Castiel when I heard you call me, and then I think I blacked out. I woke up in your minivan. The look on Sam's face is thunderous. You've played some pretty shitty pranks in your day, Dean but this is probably the worst. He gets to his feet. I'm going to put Lily to bed. Sam stalks off and Dean turns to Jessica. I'm not lying. Dean, nobody believes in time travel. Sam was worried about you all night 
If you had too many drinks or something, you can just admit it, but don't lie to him like this. Jessica gets to her feet, rubbing her back. Dean stands up to offer her his arm, but she brushes him off. Good night, Dean. Once upon a different life We our bikes into the sky The next morning over breakfast, it's immediately apparent that Sam is still pissed. Despite that, he watches Dean carefully, making sure he eats the bland, healthy breakfast Sam puts in front of him. I couldn't dodge the oatmeal bullet in the end, he mutters. Are you sure you're okay to go home? Sam asks. He might be pissed because he thinks Dean is lying, but he will never let that make him stop caring about Dean. And if the situations were reversed, Dean would do the same. I'm fine. I feel good as new, Dean says, doing a couple of jumping jacks to demonstrate. Lily tries to copy him, jumping and clapping out of sync until Dean picks her up and smooches her cheek. All right, Sam says. I'll drop you off on the way to work. I have a bunch of stuff to catch up on today, but you better answer me if I call you or I'm going to come right back over there. Dean agrees to the terms, and within an hour, he's been dropped back at his house. He takes a shower first thing before lying on his bed and turning on the TV. He dozes off until Sam texts around lunchtime, at which point he drags himself to his feet and tidies up the mess in the kitchen. He makes himself a sandwich, which he picks at while he goes through his emails. He should be hungry, but the food just makes him feel a little sick. Eventually, his eyes fall on the box of books he'd brought down from the attic. He hadn't even opened it yet, aside from lifting the flaps that first night. Curious, he gets down on the floor next to the box and starts pulling books out. There are a few novels on the top, along with a few more medical textbooks. Once he's removed that layer, he sees a few vinyl records sticking out, so he pulls those out, nodding with approval as he flips through them and finds about a dozen records, ranging from Buddy Holly and Ray Charles, through the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, right through to Springsteen and Queen. It's like a hand-picked selection of Dean's favorite music. Cass must have packed this box not long before he moved. There's a few 45s, too, including the platters and the Chuck Berry ones they had listened to last night. Two nights ago. Fifty years ago. Dean shakes his head. He finds some yearbooks next. Old ones. There's one from 1948 which must be the year Cass graduated. He flips through it and eventually finds Cass's graduation photo. He looks younger than when Dean met him, his hair trimmed neatly on the sides but longer on the top, aggressively parted and slicked down. Dean runs his finger along the photo, wishing it was in color. The next yearbook is from 1953, and he flips through it, finding what must be Cass's sister, Anna Novak. Her hair is dark and her face solemn. She doesn't look much like her brother, and Dean wonders if they take after opposite parents. The third yearbook is much newer, and Dean frowns as he pulls it out. It's from his high school, Lawrence High School, 1997. 
He flips it open to the senior page and finds himself there. Floppy 90s hair and cocky grin. Cass had his yearbook? He sets it aside and looks back in the box. The next thing he pulls out is a magazine, which Dean immediately recognizes as one of the first he'd had photos published in, back when he was still in college. At the very bottom is a scrapbook, which Dean pulls out and flips through, finding old photos from the 40s and 50s of what must be Cass's family. There are a few family portraits showing what must be Cass's father, mother, and approximately six-year-old Cass, as well as another one from when Cass looks to be about 12, with a six-year-old sister and the father, but no mother. There is an obituary for Naomi Novak, 1910 to 1937, another for Charles Novak, 1904 to 1949, and then one for Anna Novak, 1937 to 1962. The next page holds a copy of the photo of Dean in the blanket from the kitchen, along with a movie stub and a feather. On the next page is a newspaper clipping of Dean's birth, January 24, 1979, which, while Dean could have excused the yearbook, unlikely as it was, a cutout birth announcement is a little harder to ignore. He flips through the rest of the scrapbook and finds a few more newspaper clippings relating to himself. A photo of him in the second grade when a reporter asks some kids in his class questions. A photo of himself on a parade float when he was ten. There's nothing past when he was in middle school. Dean closes the scrapbook and leans back in the chair. Cass kept track of him after he was born. And then kept tabs on him at least until he moved out of his house. Why? Had he made such a big impression on him? Why hadn't Cass ever tried to talk to him? Maybe he wanted to confirm Dean was a real person. Dean has no idea. He supposes it was for the best that Cass hadn't tried to talk with him as a child. He could just imagine some guy in his 50s trying to talk to her kid wouldn't have gone over well with Mary Winchester. And in fact, it wouldn't have gone over well with Dean as an adult either. He doesn't think he would have reacted well to some old guy telling him they met 50 years ago when Dean time-traveled to the past. He started putting the books back when a slip of paper falls out of one of them. Dean picks it up and unfolds it. It's a list, but not a grocery list. Dean can barely make out Cass's handwriting. Typical doctor, he thinks with some amusement. From what he can tell, the list is medical supplies. Saline, IV tubing, gloves, etc. Dean flips it over and finds more of the doctor's terrible writing. No studies on time travel. No info or previous examples on the effects of the human body in the KU library. Perhaps in Soviet lit. That is followed by a number of names and phone numbers, all of which are crossed out. Below that, Dean can barely make out what was written. Find a way. Stop. Illness. Convince. Sam's right. Dean tucks the paper back inside the book. Sam's right? Right about what? Aside from mentioning Sam's eating habits and interest in serial killers, he doesn't really think he discussed Sam with Cass. He wonders if this means he will manage to travel back in time again. He tucks the box away and wanders into the living room, looking at the camera still propped up on the tripod. Well, there's only one way to find out. He quickly snaps off the rest of the roll and takes it up to his new darkroom to develop it. Once he's done, he goes back down to his office and looks at his prints, trying to see if there's anything unusual in them, 
remembering suddenly the shadowy shape he'd seen in the earlier set of photos. The first couple were from when he'd first set up the tripod. The next one is the selfie he took. The one that had sent him to the past. He looks closely, trying to find anything unusual, but other than the fact that he'd blinked, it's perfectly fine. The rest of the roll is mostly okay as well, except the shadowy shape is back in the frame and the ones in the kitchen. It almost looks like... His phone rings, startling him. It's Sam, so he answers it. Dean can hear the traffic in the background. He sighs. Are you driving, Sammy? I have my Bluetooth, Sam says defensively. Dean rolls his eyes. He could just wait until he gets home, but they've had that argument a million times. I'm coming over to check on you. I'm fine, Sam. But he knows there's no arguing. Do you want supper? No, Jess is making supper. But I can pick you up some takeout if you like. Dean looks at his half-eaten sandwich from before. The idea of food makes his stomach roil. No, I'm fine. Okay, I'll be there in ten. Sam hangs up the phone. Dean sets his phone down and notices the box of negatives. Maybe there's something in there, too. His scanner has an attachment to scan negatives, although he's never had the chance to use it. He pulls a strip out and sets the device. But before the image is loaded onto his computer, he hears Sam coming in the house. He gets to his feet, swaying as a wave of vertigo hits him. He's still standing there, gripping the back of his desk chair tightly when Sam comes in. He hurries to Dean's side. Jesus, Dean, I thought you said you were okay. I'm fine, just a bit dizzy, but it's already passing. Sam helps him sit back down and then stands there staring at him with a bitchy frown on his face. You need to tell me what really happened, Dean. I don't need a bullshit fairy tale about time travel either. Is it the dark room? The chemicals? Are they safe? I wasn't joking, Sam. It's not a fairy tale. Look. He goes through the pictures he'd taken in the house, pointing out the shadowy figure. I think that's him, Sam. I think somehow the camera works between time or something. It picks up this shape sometimes. It's not a lens problem or the film I checked. I'm worried about you. Jess is too. You've been spending too much time here alone, and I don't think it's good for you. You work too hard. I think maybe you need a break. Sam. Dean looks up at his brother. He sighs. Sam means well, but he's just wrong. Look, Sam. Dean starts pulling books out of the box. He has my yearbook. My birth announcement. Dean, do you know how creepy that is? Some old guy had a weird obsession with you, and now you're obsessed back. Sam is looking over Dean's shoulder at the picture of Cass that's propped up on his desk. I think it was the chemicals. I think you passed out and had a weird dream. Maybe you've been staring at this picture too much. But time travel isn't real, Dean. Sam rubs his hands over his face. I don't know if it's better or worse that he's dead. Dean's heart clenches at the reminder. Cass is dead. That's not cool, Sam. He was a person. It's not like he spent years lurking outside my bedroom window. I never even saw him before that day. He was just a lonely old man. I think you need to go. Dean. Sam. The brothers stare at each other for a few minutes. 
I'll see you on Sunday, Dean finally says. Sam's shoulders fall in defeat. Dean gets to his feet and walks his brother to the door. I'll text you, he says, before shutting the door behind his brother. Once he's back inside, he looks at the camera on the tripod. He's tempted to take another selfie, to see if it works again. But he knows if he doesn't answer his phone for the next few days, his brother will just worry. Exhausted suddenly, he locks up and goes around turning off the lights. He'll start scanning those negatives in the morning. Dean's still asleep when he's awoken by a text from his brother at nine, and he goes right back to sleep after replying, not waking until noon. His milk is bad, so he takes a bowl of dry cereal into his office along with a box of negatives. He picks at his cereal as he goes through them, sorting them into ones with people in them and ones without. The first strip scans without incident, and he goes through the photos on his computer. They're mostly from a park in Lawrence, leaves just beginning to change and golden sunlight on everything. He only prints one picture, a selfie he definitely didn't take when he went back in time before. It's obviously of him and Cass, although unfortunately at a bad angle as he managed to get all of Cass in the frame but only one side of his head. It's probably because he's not used to taking a selfie without a digital screen. He'll have to compensate for that when he actually takes the picture in the future. The past. His future. The world's past. It's confusing, but Dean shrugs. He's glad to have the confirmation that he's going to have another trip into the past, although it doesn't look good enough to prove it to Sam. At least he has another picture of Cass. Maybe there will be something better on one of the other strips. He feeds the next strip into the scanner and hits the button, but instead of the negative sliding smoothly into the slot, it makes a whirring noise and starts beeping. Worried, he pulls the negative out and checks the end. It's a little jagged, so he tries again with one of the all-landscape negatives, which is promptly chewed up by the machine. Frustrated, he picks bits of celluloid out of the scanner and tries again, but this time it won't catch at all. He swears to himself, but he's not ready to give up yet. He has a whole darkroom upstairs he can use. He collects the good strips and heads upstairs. He pauses at the top, holding the wall to keep upright, fighting a wave of vertigo. He frowns. He got better much faster last time. It's been a few days already, and he's still suffering from the random waves of dizziness and nausea. The wave passes to his relief, and he goes into the darkroom and sets the negatives on the counter, pulling down the chemicals he needs. He is reaching for the bleach when a wave of dizziness overcomes him. He tries to set the bottle on the counter, but something hits something else, and he's grabbing futilely for the counter as he slides to the floor. Lonely water, lonely water, won't you let us run let us hold each other. A noxious smell and the sound of dripping greets him as he slowly wakes back up. He remembers immediately what happened, but he has no idea how long he was out for. Cautiously, he gets to his feet to survey the damage. No, 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 he mutters to himself as he grabs gloves and starts pulling the negatives from the pool of bleach. 
They've been sitting in it long enough to soak through the sleeves and into the negatives. Swearing, he starts rinsing them in the sink, pausing after a moment to let the room air out a bit. He's lucky he didn't poison himself. After he's rinsed the negatives and hung them to dry, he looks them over. It doesn't look good. Most of the frames are damaged and unsalvageable. He'll get very few good pictures out of these, and he's going to need to order more photographic bleach before he can even try. He angrily finishes cleaning up his mess before heading downstairs. Fuck printers and fuck dark rooms, too. The dinner the next day with Sam and his family is uneventful. Dean is feeling much better by then and has ordered more chemicals and calmed down a little bit over the damage to the negatives, as well as not having anything really definitive to show his brother. He and Sam came to an unspoken agreement to not discuss Dean's illness, time travel, the camera, or Castiel Novak. Instead, they discuss Lily's brand new mermaid obsession, gas prices, and how Jessica is unable to tie her own shoes. Sam laughs at her retelling of an adventure at the library involving Lily in an undersea display, and Dean watches them a little wistfully. He'd never felt his lack of a relationship quite so keenly before, and for some reason it makes him think of Cass, alone in that big house for years. Dean wonders suddenly if the same fate awaits him, too. I'm going out of town, he says suddenly. What? Yeah, I got a gig doing a destination wedding. Roaming is like a million dollars, though, so I'll be out of cell service, he thinks quickly. Maybe I can email you. He can probably set up some emails on a timer or something. How long will you be gone? I'm leaving tomorrow. Should be back by next Monday, though. I'll miss dinner next week. That should give him plenty of time before Sam starts to worry. Sam gives a look to Jess but doesn't say anything. Just leave me info on where I can get a hold of you, Sam says. When Dean gets home, he spends some time on Google, finding a resort he could plausibly have gone to. He sends the info to Sam, but tells him that the booking is under another name, so not to bother calling unless it's an emergency. Dean figures he's safe. He can't think of what kind of emergency Sam will have before next Monday. He sets some emails to go out to Sam throughout the week, including some photos from the resort he snags off the internet. He even photoshops himself into a couple, hoping Sam doesn't look too closely. When he's done, he goes around the house checking that the doors are locked and there's nothing else that will be a problem while he's gone. Then he changes into jeans and a plaid shirt, hoping he will fit in okay in the 60s. He sets the timer on the camera, sits on the sofa and waits, gritting his teeth. He thinks he's ready, but when the blow comes, it's so much worse than expected.
Chapter 6 He Knew Me When Dean's eyes open, he finds himself in the sick room at Cass's house, the one he uses as an office. He turns his head to see Cass on an uncomfortable-looking chair, his head lolled to one side. When he tries to speak, his mouth feels like it's full of half-dried glue. It's somehow enough to startle Cass awake. He looks like shit, dark circles under his eyes like he hasn't slept in days. He must not have to fall asleep on that chair. Cass is on his feet in a flash, his hands to Dean's forehead. Hey, Cass, Dean manages this time. How long was I out? I found you on the living room floor 36 hours ago, Dean. You had a fever of 103 for several hours. You wouldn't keep down aspirin, and I spent hours soaking towels in cool water to bring your fever down. I don't think time travel is very healthy. So you finally believe me? You vanished right in front of my eyes. I had to believe something. Why did you come back? I had to see you again. I don't know if it's worth it, Dean. Dean looks at Cass's worried blue eyes and smiles. Definitely worth it. His eyes drift closed. When he next wakes up, it's to Cass coming in with some food on a tray. It's soup and a sandwich, and Dean manages to sit up in order to eat it. The food makes him queasy, but he forces it down in order to reassure Cass, who's hovering over him nervously. He finishes most of it and then lets Cass help him to his feet and up the stairs to the bathroom, where he runs Dean a bath. Dean practically shoves him out the door, saying he can wash himself, although he's not entirely sure that's the case. Between the food and the warm bath, he feels much better and manages to depart the bathroom under his own power. Cass still insists on helping him down the stairs, but he refuses to go back into the sick room and settles instead on the couch. Tucked in with a quilt and a pillow and a thermometer jammed in his mouth, Cass relaxes once he sees that Dean's temperature is mostly normal. Cass turns on the TV and they watch half a soap opera together before Dean dozes off. And when he wakes up, it's to Cass shaking him awake to eat dinner. Dean doesn't want to eat at the couch, so he stands, fighting off dizziness, and makes his way to the kitchen table. And makes his way to the kitchen table where he eats as much as he can, mostly to placate Cass. Cass shuffles him back to the couch again after dinner and turns on the TV. There's some boring cop show on. Dean ignores it and watches Cass instead. He's wearing that sweater again the blue one from the box, and it brings out the blue of his eyes, even in the dim, pale light of the black-and-white TV. His hair is an unkempt, dark shock, stuck up from where Cass has been unconsciously running his hands through it all day. Dean resists the urge to pat it down. Cass laughs at something on the TV and turns to Dean, who can't help but return the smile. Dean feels his heart in his throat. The sound of an ad jingle drags their attention back to the TV, but it isn't long before Dean catches himself staring again. Cass is handsome and has a stable income, but he died alone and apparently without any relations. How come you never had a family? He wonders aloud before slapping his hand over his mouth. I, what? 
Never mind, that was not a good thing to ask. Nevertheless, you did. I never married, and I had no children. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, my brother tried to find your next of kin because of your stuff, but he hasn't had any luck. Hmm. Well, I always figured eventually I would try to find a woman I could... I would be able to, um... That I could stand to be married to. But I never really felt inclined to be urgent about it. He avoids Dean's eyes. Dean sips his drink and tries to calm his heart down. Is Cass saying, implying? Well, he could feel the situation out a little. I am not ready to get married either. My last girlfriend, Cassie, wanted to focus on her career. And my last boyfriend, Fergus, liked to party a bit too much for my taste. Boyfriend? Yes. Dean looks Cass directly in the eyes. I am very equal opportunity. Things are a little more free for queer people in the future. That sounds lovely. Cass breathes. I knew a boy in college who was like me. But obviously it didn't, couldn't really work out. I always assumed I would end up alone, which you've confirmed, I suppose. Oh, Cass, I'm sorry. Cass turns back to the TV and stares at it for a moment, his mouth tight. It's getting late. I think you should get some sleep. I made the spare room up for you. Thanks, Cass, Dean says. He pushes the blanket off his legs and goes to stand. Cass reaches out a hand and Dean takes it, letting Cass pull him to his feet. His hand is warm and soft and Dean lets it go reluctantly. He waits while Cass turns off the TV and the lights, then starts up the stairs with Cass right behind him. He stops at the door to the spare room as Cass passes. I will keep my door open. Just shout if you need anything. Yeah, will do. Dean leaves his door open a crack as well, after he changes into the pajamas Cass left for him. He crawls into bed, aware of Cass down the hall. He strains, trying to hear him moving around, but the doctor is quiet as a mouse. He's still listening when he falls asleep. Yes, they belong to only me. Dean's always been a morning person, so on Thursday morning he awakes to find that Castiel is still asleep. He creeps downstairs and takes the liberty of making coffee and then breakfast. And when Cass comes downstairs, Dean is ready with a hot mug and some pancakes. They smile at each other over breakfast, then spend the morning cleaning the kitchen in the sick room. Cass tries to get Dean to sit down, but he's feeling fantastic. And plus, he tells Cass, it feels weird to sit around while someone else cleans what feels like his own house. They brainstorm a bit about time travel trying to figure out how it could have happened and how to reverse it. Although if Dean is honest with himself, he doesn't really want to reverse it. He's enjoying spending time with Castiel. He's fun to talk to, smart, has good taste in stuff that Dean likes, and is incredibly easy on the eyes. Eventually they give up on the time travel. 
Cass suggests they pack a lunch and take the camera out to get some more pictures of Lawrence, and Dean agrees. He suggests some spots he has gone in the past for shoots, and they go to them one by one. Late in the afternoon, they find themselves in a quiet park by the river, and Dean has Cass pose with the sun over his shoulder. And Dean snaps a few pictures of him like that. He hopes like hell that these photos somehow missed the bleach disaster. Beautiful. He breathes, watching Cass as he watches a bird land nearby. Cass turns to look at him. The bird, Dean laughs. It's a good-looking bird. Dean is not looking at the bird. Cass smiles at Dean, and for a long moment, they just look at each other. I noticed the bird pictures you took were a little blurry. You want some tips? Sure, Cass says. Dean hands Cass the camera and starts pointing out some of the settings on it and how to use them to be more effective in different lighting situations. They snap a few more pictures, then Dean takes it back. There's one shot left, so he puts his arm around Cass and turns the camera around. He holds it up and points at the both of them. Selfie time, Dean says. Smile. Cass says, cheese, and Dean tilts the camera a little to the side hoping to compensate for the framing mistake in this photo, the only one he has. But just as he hits the shutter, Cass slips a little, throwing Dean's angle off. Well, shit, Dean says with a laugh. They aren't in a rush to leave the park so they walk around a little while longer. Eventually, they find a bench and sit down, watching the setting sun glint on the water. Dean lets his hand slip off his lap and brush against Cass's. It's cool out, and Cass's finger seems cold against his. He inches his hand a little closer, and when Castiel doesn't pull away, he slides it closer still, slipping two fingers under Cass's. There's a brief moment of terror. Then he feels the tip of Cass's finger hook around his. He smiles into the sunset. They don't talk as the sun disappears below the horizon, and Dean can't help but wish he could spend every sunset like this, hand in hand with Cass. Unbidden, the memory of the old man with his warm, worn hand in his as he slipped away shoves its way into his mind. Cass knew him, he realizes. The old man who died at the Fourth of July parade with his hand in Dean's knew him. Dean tightens his fingers around Cass's. Cass squeezes back. I swear by everything I own, you'll always, always be When they arrive back at the house, Cass heats up some soup he made while Dean was ill, and Dean suggests they eat it in front of Cass's black-and-white TV. They watch some weird show with a talking horse, and Dean realizes why reading was a much bigger pastime before HBO came along. They wash up together at the sink, but neither one of them seems to be eager to call it a night. Instead, they lean on the counter and talk, sharing stories about their siblings and childhood comparing the 30s and 40s with the 80s and 90s. Eventually, the clock chimes 11 and Cass sighs. 
It's getting late, Cass says regretfully. Dean agrees and follows Cass up the stairs. They pause in front of the spare room. Cass turns to Dean, opening his mouth as if to say something, but he shuts it instead. He knew me, Dean thinks. Cass, he whispers. He reaches out to take Cass's hand and tugs him gently. Cass doesn't pull away. He doesn't pull away and he doesn't go in his room. He lets Dean tug him closer, and he looks at Dean from so close that Dean can see the way the blue of his eyes fan out from the pupil in spokes of navy, gray, and cerulean. Dean licks his lips and those blue eyes drop to his mouth and he's done. He leans forward, but Cass meets him halfway and it's like electricity. It's like the first spray of a hot shower. It's that first sip of coffee in the morning. It's like the kick in the gut of time travel. It's not tentative. They've been dancing around each other for two days. Dean finds himself pushed up against the wall, but he pulls Cass along with him, his hands already tangled in Cass's hair, Cass's tongue tangled up in his mouth. Cass pushes his full body against Dean's from thigh to chest, and Dean tilts his head and opens his mouth to let him in. He's everything. Everything Dean could have ever wanted or needed. He's light. He's oxygen. Cass's lips move along his jaw into his throat. I've been thinking about this all day. Cass rumbles near his ear. Oh, fuck, me too. Me too, Dean says. Will you come to bed with me? Cass mutters, his voice trembling. Oh, hell yes. Dean replies, and Cass starts tugging him along to his bedroom. Their bedroom, really, Dean thinks. The door flies open and bangs into the wall, but they ignore it. Dean is already plucking at the buttons of Cass's shirt, while Cass's hands are sliding into the back of Dean's pants, pulling him close by his ass so Dean can feel the firm length of him up against him. Somehow they stumble to the bed. Dean walks back and Cass lands halfway on top of him, without letting their mouths separate. Dean manages to get the last button of Cass's shirt off, and he pushes it back off his shoulders, but he doesn't try to get it the rest of the way. Instead, he runs his hands down Cass's torso, brushing over his chest to his belt, which he unbuckles in record speed before starting on the button of his pants. Cass pulls back just long enough to tug Dean upright and pull his shirt off over his head, before smashing their mouths back together. By now, Dean has managed to work his hand into Cass's underwear and wrap his fingers around his length, hot, hard, and heavy in his palm. Cass lets out a moan which makes the hair stand up on the back of Dean's neck. But when Cass manages to get his hand around Dean's cock, he echoes the sound, moaning at the feel of Cass's soft hand as it works him over, thumbing over the head and stroking firmly to the base. Dean buries his face in Cass's throat, breathing in the scent of his soap and his skin, trying unsuccessfully to focus on what he's doing to Cass while Cass works his magic. Suddenly, Cass pulls back and Dean moans in dismay, opening his eyes to look up. One second, Cass says, reaching over to his nightstand where he grabs a jar of Vaseline. Dean smirks at him. Like to keep the lube handy, Doc? 
Cass flushes a little but doesn't hesitate, scooping out a bit of the jelly and setting the jar back down. I wash my hands a lot. It prevents dry skin. Sure, okay, Dean says. But he watches with interest as Cass strokes his own cock for a moment, coating it in the jelly before shifting over top Dean and settling between his legs. He lines their cocks up and wraps his hand around them both, forming a tunnel for them to thrust into. It's hot and slick where they're gliding together, and Dean doesn't think he will last long like this. He pulls Cass down to join their mouths, their tongues sliding together in a mirror of their dicks. Fuck, Dean, Cass whispers. The low growl of his voice goes straight to Dean's cock, and he gasps for air, trying to last a little longer. But Cass's hand falters, his hips losing their rhythm, and when Dean feels the heat of Cass's release between them, it pushes him over the edge as well. They thrust together lazily as they come down, slowly kissing for long minutes, until Dean's heart resumes its normal rate and Cass rolls off to the side. He looks down at Dean's belly, coated in cooling cum. I'll be right back, he says, getting to his feet. Don't go anywhere. Where would I go? Dean replies, watching as he slides out of the bed and out of the room. Cass returns in a few minutes with a warm cloth and Dean wipes himself up. Cass pulls on his boxers but stands awkwardly next to the bed. I would you like to stay here tonight? Cass looks unsure suddenly. Dean gets up, pulls the bedding back and slips into bed, patting the spot next to him. Absolutely I would. Cass grins at him before shutting off the light and sliding in next to Dean. Dean scoots next to him and Cass takes him in his arms. Dean can just barely make out the soft smile on Cass's face and the light coming in from the street outside. He presses a kiss to Cass's cheek. Good night, babe, Dean says. Good night, Dean. Something soft is tickling Dean's nose. He blinks an eye open and is met with a face full of dark hair. It only takes a second to realize he's in bed with Cass, and he smiles and snuggles closer. He's warm and comfy, and he wants to stay, but unfortunately he has to pee. So he slides out of bed without waking Cass and uses the bathroom before creeping downstairs and starting on breakfast. It's not long before he hears the shower, and by the time Cass appears in the kitchen in gray slacks and a soft blue sweater, he has everything ready. They smile shyly at each other over coffee, then work together to clean up. Dean flicks foam at Cass, and Cass swats him with a towel, and that degenerates into laughing kisses, then harder kisses. Then Cass has Dean pressed up against the kitchen counter as he pushes open his robe and mouths his way down Dean's chest to the top of his pajama pants. Dean groans out Cass's name as he pushes the pants and underwear down together, revealing Dean's cock, and he looks up through dark lashes at Dean as he takes him in his mouth. It's an image he wishes he could capture on film, the sight of Cass on his knees, his lips wrapped around Dean as his tongue works him over. 
Dean warns him, but Cass ignores it. And when Dean finishes, he does so down Cass's throat, and he swallows every last bit of it, wiping his mouth as he gets to his feet. Dean smashes their lips together, tasting himself on Cass's tongue, before returning the favor. They take a trip to the grocery store to stock up, but they don't delay returning, and they spend the better part of the afternoon curled up on the couch under a quilt, watching old, to Dean, TV shows. They cook dinner together, and when night falls, they brush their teeth side by side at the sink and then crawl together into bed, where they make out lazily until they fall asleep. Saturday is much the same. They talk all day about anything that comes to mind. Dean suggests they pick some crab apples off the tree outside. So they spend an hour doing that, then another hour painstakingly peeling and slicing the little apples. Dean rolls out some dough and puts a pie in the oven. Then they turn on the TV to wait. It's about 15 minutes later that Dean hears something. Is there someone at the door? He asks. Cass gets up and peers out through the curtain. No, there's nobody there. I swear I can hear. Can you turn off the TV? Cass shuts the TV off and Dean gets to his feet, listening intently. Dean, are you home? Dean hears it then, clearly. It's Sam. He's calling my name. He's... The blow comes from behind and within him at the same time, and he's flung to the floor. His lunch comes up and he falls to his side, curling in on himself. His head is throbbing and he pries his eyes open to see his record player, his couch, and the pentax on his tripod. The last thing he sees before everything goes black is Sam. Chapter 7. Just a fantasy. A beeping sound is what wakes Dean. He doesn't try to open his eyes, knowing that the pounding in his head will only get worse when he does. Dean? He hears Sam's voice from his left. Are you waking up? I should call the nurse. Day is it? Dean manages to croak out. Shit, his throat feels like he's been swallowing knives. Monday. Dean, don't try to talk. You were basically in a coma when I found you. But I had more time. You called me back. Why'd you do that? He slips back into sleep.
He's more lucid when he wakes up again, and Sam isn't there this time. Instead, it's a nurse who wakes him up by grabbing his wrist unceremoniously and taking his pulse. A brief conversation lets him know that it's now Tuesday, October 2nd, and he's been in the hospital since his brother found him in his house on Sunday. He's not looking forward to hearing Sam's side of the story. But the inevitable happens a few hours later when Sam walks through the doorway with a scowl on his face and a car seat in his hands. Dean was half asleep, but he jolts to alertness, looking curiously at the car seat. A squeal from within draws Sam's attention before he can say anything to Dean, so he waits while Sam removes the bundle from its carrier and cradles it in his arms. I thought you'd like to meet your nephew, Sam says. Dean holds out his arms, and Sam only hesitates a moment before he hands in the little guy, who blinks up at Dean with washed-out pale eyes. Sam sits on the chair next to Dean and folds his arms. Jess went into labor on Saturday. I tried to call you, then I remembered you were out of town, so I tried to get in touch with the resort, after I emailed you about a dozen times. They had no idea who you were, and there were no weddings scheduled. So I drove by your house to see if you had left the wrong information. The Impala was in the driveway, so I went in. I thought at first you must have taken a cab, but I saw the camera set up in the living room. I figured you must have been home, but when I yelled, I heard you fall down in the kitchen, and I found you there passed out. So between you and Jess at the hospital, I've been running all over the place. And honestly, I'm fucking pissed. Sam... Why did you lie about going out of town? I didn't want you to worry about me. If I didn't call for a few days. And I wanted to see if the camera would work again. And it did. It did, Sam. It sent me right back to Cass. I don't know how, but it works. Until I heard you. I think that's what brought me back. I was in the kitchen and I heard you calling and... Sam's face is a thundercloud. Dean, I don't know what's up with you. You've never lied to me before. Even when I went to California, after Mom and Dad died and you went through that rough patch, we talked. You talked to me when you were having problems and we worked it out. We're a team. Sam, I'm not lying. I like him, Sam. I've never met anyone like him. He's a fantasy, Dean. Dean's arms tighten around his nephew, and he looks down at the baby. He takes a breath. He's never going to be able to convince Sam that what happened was real, at least not while Sam is tired and stressed with a new baby. He strokes the tiny fingers which open and close around his much bigger one, and he remembers doing the same thing with Lily when she was born, with Sam when his mother introduced them. This baby is his family, and he needs his father to focus on him, not on whether or not Dean is delusional or something. He offers the baby back to Sam, who takes him and holds him against his chest, jiggling him lightly. Jess is waiting outside. I don't know when they're going to discharge you, but when you do, you're coming home with us. Days, rock and roll, the way you play for 
It's two days before Dean is discharged. He doesn't recover as quickly this time, so he doesn't argue with Sam and Jess about staying at their house. However, he tries his best not to put them out too much while he's there. He sleeps a lot and can barely keep down any food, but he plays with Lily and holds Michael and changes a diaper here and there. After a week, Sam lets him go home during the day so he can work, although he picks him up again after he's done at the office. And he stays nights at Sam's for another week before he manages to convince him that he's okay to go back home for good. He spends another week texting Sam an excessive amount before he finally gets the feeling that Sam might be relaxing a bit. His appetite slowly returns, although he's lost quite a bit of weight while he was sick. It is clear that he's getting sicker every time he goes to the past, so he tries his best to eat as healthy as possible and even goes to the gym in an effort to rebuild a little muscle mass. Because he's definitely going to go again. When he walks around the empty rooms of his house, it's like he can feel Cass around every corner. He sees him in the bedroom they once shared, the kitchen where they shared meals, the living room where they curled up together on the sofa. He'd gone through Cass's things, flipping through all the books and collecting every scrap of paper he could find. He'd found a fair bit. Notes in the margins, grocery lists, and disconcertingly a note in his own handwriting that said, Prescription for two kisses every hour and call me in the morning, Dr. Dean. That he honestly couldn't wait to write. He'd printed all the remaining negatives, most of which were birds or pictures of Lawrence buildings and landmarks. Unfortunately, the selfie they'd taken had remained with most of Dean's face cut out of the frame, so there isn't anything he can definitively hand to Sam as proof that he'd gone back in time. He prints everything that has Cass in them, though, and sets them aside. He picks up a photo album one day and slides all the pictures of Cass into it, putting the album on the bookshelf so it's not out in the open for Sam to comment on when he stops by. As the weather cools, he finds he spends more and more time flipping through the album he made. The records from the box have migrated to the shelf near his record player, and he hasn't removed the Ray Charles one in days. He's even taken to wearing Cass's old blue sweater around the house when he's chilly. It doesn't smell like Cass. It doesn't smell like anything but old dust. But he's too afraid to wash it in case it falls apart. So he just wraps himself in it carefully and flips through his photos. Sam seems to relax enough eventually to make plans with Jess to take his kids to California for Thanksgiving. He still frets, though, so Dean makes a big show about some concert tickets and a road trip to Austin, going so far as to actually purchase the tickets and book the hotel room. He talks about it enough that he's even half convinced himself that he's going. He drives Sam and his family to the airport in Sam's caravan. He mocks his brother relentlessly the entire time. It's comfy, but it's like driving a living room. It even has a DVD player in it, and he is forced to listen to the wiggles the entire drive. 
He is still in pretty good spirits as he waves goodbye to his family and brings the minivan back to Sam's place. He's already arranged for Benny to pick Sam up from the airport next week, so he thinks he has a solid week to ten days before Sam comes to his house to call him back from the past. Just to be safe, he parks the Impala in a storage unit. He sets the camera up in his office in order to make it a bit easier for Cass, then sets the timer, sits in his chair, and waits. Try to keep you close to me While I got in between Tried to square, not be in there But said that I should have been back the river, let me look in your eyes Hold back the river so I can stop for a minute and see where you hide Hold back the river, hold back Once upon a different life We rode our bikes into the sky
can be contacted on Twitter, Tumblr, or at makingitupaswegopod at gmail.com. If you are able, please go to the author's AO3 story and give comments and kudos to them for sharing this with us. The link is in the show notes. This will also be posted on AO3 as a podfic under my username, and the link will be in the show notes as well. As always, thank you so much for listening.